Hello, this is one of my podcasts where you need to keep your mind well and truly open to alternative ideas and points of view. It is my aim to have people from all walks of life on my podcast and thus at times conversations can get messy and are not always driven or informed by data or scientific fact. At no point do I pretend that this is otherwise. For this particular episode, I also need to reinforce that as it currently stands, the TGA states that COVID-19 vaccines are safe, effective, and reduce your risk of severe illness. Hundreds of millions of people have received a COVID-19 vaccine and serious adverse reactions are uncommon. I, nor my guests today, are medical doctors. My PhD was in philosophy. Portions of this program will examine countervailing views on important medical issues. You should always consult your personal physician before making any decisions about your health. Uh, welcome everyone. Today I have the pleasure of chatting with Kevin Lockray, who is the only independent candidate running for the seat of Ballina in the New South Wales election on the 25th of March. Kevin's seat located on the northern coast of New South Wales incorporates Byron Bay, Mullumbimby, Broken Head, sorry, excuse me, Broken Head, and of course Ballina. Kevin has 32 years experience in the Australian military and retired with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Kevin graduated with an honours degree in mechanical engineering from the University of New South Wales. And this is the first time Kevin has run for parliament, which I think is incredibly brave. I admire anyone willing to put their neck on the line for what they believe in. Kevin is truly passionate about representing his region and has some very interesting and thought-provoking policy ideas, both at the macro and micro levels, which I'm excited to explore with him today. I'm also looking forward to hearing how the region is recovering one year on from a once-in-a-lifetime flood, which hit northern New South Wales so hard in 2022. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining me uh, this evening. And congratulations on your decision to run as an independent candidate for the seat of Ballina. Thank you very much, Victor. And, and also thank you for, for us, you know, inviting me to come here and talk to you. I'm, I'm very grateful. Yeah, cool. Well, it's one of my favourite places um, on the planet. So I have an interest in that area for sure. So um, to start out with, let's just check in with where you're at now. So am I correct in saying you're about 17 days out from the election? Just over two uh, weeks. Yes, yes, it's the twenty fifth when okay. we when we go to the poll. So you're absolutely correct. It is seventeen days. A bit frightening, that isn't it? In actuality, there's a uh, six day pre poll, so it's even less than that. Uh, a lot of people do vote during the pre poll, and and by the way, Victor, I, I have to. This is one of the things that I've discovered in being involved in politics. I really disagree with pre poll. The pre poll. Sorry about that. Um, I disagree with it on two levels. Firstly, it's really important that when voters go to cast their vote, that they're fully informed of all the issues. And you cannot be fully informed of all the issues if you vote early, because you have not been subjected to the full election campaign of the various candidates. That's the first point. The second yeah. is that these polling booths have to be manned, and they have to be manned by electoral commission people and they have to be manned by representatives of the candidate. And if you're running as an independent, you don't have a party and all of the hangers-on of a party to back you up. So it's very difficult for an independent to have a lot of people standing constantly 
at polling booths handing out how-to-vote cards um, for six days. And that that actually brings me on to the business of how-to-vote cards. If somebody can be convinced how to vote one minute before they go to cast their vote, they're not giving a lot of thought to this very serious matter of deciding which candidate is going to become the elected representative. And so my own feeling is that how to vote cards ought to, in fact, be banned from polling booths, but that you instead provide a facility on the web where voters can go and learn about each candidate. That would, in fact, flatten the field because then independents like me wouldn't have to find thousands of dollars to advertise themselves. And also, whilst they are visiting this site, they could go on to a VPN, a virtual private network, so it's in total anonymity, and create their own how-to-vote card. Now, as an inducement for people to do that, when they first go into this website, which isn't in a virtual private network, they could actually create a letter by, say, for instance, the Electoral Commission, and on it would be a data matrix barcode such that they are now properly identified and they could walk into the polling station, have that letter scanned, up would come their face from their license or some other ID. The uh, electoral representative who is registering voters before they go and cast their vote would look at the, uh, at the image on the screen, look at you and say, yes, you are the person you purport to be, that letter belongs to you. And then they give you your voting papers and you can go straight in and vote. So there wouldn't be a long line. At present, in our system, you have to report to a table and often they've got this book, depends on the systems that they're using, and they have to rule through your name on this book. There's no guarantee that really you wouldn't go to another polling station somewhere else distant and do the same thing over again. Um, these are the sorts of things which have become apparent to me. They're, they're, we, we don't run elections very well. Mm. Uh, and we make it difficult for independents to put themselves forward as a candidate. And that would, in my opinion, explain to me why the quality of many of our elected representatives is so poor. Yeah. Because, because really, uh, you know, really useful people have a life. They're running a business, possibly. And they can't afford to spend six months walking around the electorate shaking hands with everybody. Mm. Um, and they, they, they really, it's, this is a, uh, it's almost like a closed shop. I've, it has been really interesting to me uh, because I'm, I'm 71 years of age. Uh, I've now um, built my house here with my own hands. And I'm in a position where I can afford to take time off and ca campaign, and I've been incredibly lucky to find a fairly large group of people who believe in me and who are helping me. I, I think, uh, to be honest with you, I've never thought about um, how pre-polling itself is stacked against independence. Yeah. That, that uh, those, um, and, and I think that you mentioned the how to vote cards. Um, I have read that up to 30% of people walking in to vote don't know who they're voting for, and it just happens to be whoever thrusts that piece of paper into their hand, that is actually what they use to fill in the form. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and that is almost as if the system itself is stacked against anyone outside of the major parties 
running. Yes. Let um, me let me give you a further uh, insight into that as well. Um, I ran for the council. I mentioned that before when we were having a uh, a previous conversation. I, I ran for a council election here, and I did it specifically to try and help the present mayor, Mayor Sharon Cadwallader, to get elected. And in that, I was successful. I also gave preferences to Rod Bruin, who's another fine fellow that I wanted to see as a councillor. When I was standing outside the Ballina Coast High School, which was the central polling booth for Ballina Shire, I would walk up to people because I was in Ward A. I was running as a candidate in Ward A. And I would say to people, what ward are you in? And over 50% of the people I approached on that day did not know what ward they were in. So how would they ever know who was running for that ward or anything about that person? Hmm. That's it. Now, just dealing with regard the ballot papers, I would, I in this day and age, to print a ballot paper using digital technology is in fact cheaper than printing ballot papers with offset technology. Because with a printed technology, you know, digital printing, the first copy that comes out, it's perfect. You mm. don't have, whereas with an offset printer, firstly, you have to set it up with all of its ink, and then you have to do a run to get the ink running properly. And then you do the proper run. And at the end of the process, you then have to run it down and there's ink wastage and all the rest of it. Whereas with the digital printing system, that doesn't happen. And the reason I'm dwelling on this is that it is possible now with modern technology that you uh, throw random numbers such that every ballot presents the candidates in a different uh, sequence. Right. At and, and that, that would then get rid of the uh, donkey vote. It would also, to some extent, ameliorate the effect of uninterested voters because they actually have to go and look for the person's name on the ballot paper. Right. Now, I've actually put that to the Electoral Commission and the response is a big nothing burger. It's all what, too have hard. Have they um, spoken to you as to why we haven't moved beyond paper voting? Well, I actually, now I, I, I give you a little insight there. I actually headed a group of people, in, and I, I'm, I'm wondering how much to go into, but I was able to break into a cloud server in a particular city, and I was able to look at all the companies that were using that cloud server, and they were substantial. And I was able then to look at the accounting systems. And, and because I've written accounting systems, it was a doddle for me to work out where the general ledger was in the SQL databases that they were using. And I could go all through there and because I had administrative privileges, I could remove any trace that I had been into that computer system. Believe me, you do not want to use computer-based voting because right. if you're faced with a nation state like communist China or even the United States of America or Russia or whomever, uh, they have the necessary expertise to go in and change your database. The only thing that really works is on the day everybody should turn up and in front of everybody they should vote, obviously secretly, but unless they're conjurers, they can't dispose of the ballots or do anything cute. The ballot is placed in a box and whilst everybody is looking at it, at the end of the day the box is broken open and then it's counted in front of scrutineers. Mm. The results are written up on a whiteboard 
and then those results are, are photographed by somebody or whatever, and then they're transmitted to, say, for example, in the case of a state election down to Macquarie Street for the tabulation. And all the way, you have visibility to see that no one's done any sort of jiggery pokery. Yeah. Because believe me, they will. They've, I don't know if you've been, you've ever looked at it, but there is no doubt in my mind that the 2020 election was stolen, that Trump actually won that election by a landslide. Uh, and I, two, two, yeah, this is the American election. Yeah. And and the 2000 mule showed you some of the shenanigans that the Democrats got up to, but there's a whole lot more. For example, in Philadelphia, they had a whole lot of postal votes where the signatures were never checked. The provenance of these ballots was never known. The uh, it's the chain of custody was broken, and in fact, with Carrie Lake in Arizona, that too was a totally corrupt election in Maricopa County. They had something like two hundred thousand ballots which didn't have a proper chain of custody. Mm. There's no doubt that they sabotaged the uh, voting machines by printing a nineteen-inch image on a twenty-inch paper, such that the tabulation machine couldn't read the ballots. This what this didn't happen by accident. And yeah. then you look at the court case that Carrie Lake uh, went into where the judge more or less refused to look at anything but an extremely narrow band of evidence and refused to give the reasons why the judge would not examine all of the evidence. Uh, yeah. that, honestly, uh, you know, something rotten in Denmark when it comes to America. Truly. Right. I got you. But going back, bringing back to the digital, I just wanted to clarify yeah. that what you were saying was printing out digitally so that um, there was a random allocation of candidates, but you were still voting in person with... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, look, I've, I've actually written about this on my website. If you go to Thoughts and Ideas yep. on my website, that's kevinlockray.com.au, and you'll see there are buttons running down the left-hand side. It's a very easy-to-use website, yep. and there's a, a button which says Thoughts and Ideas, and you go to an area which I call the Agora, which I borrowed from ancient Greece. In the, the Agora was where people could go and say anything and they wouldn't be put to the sword. Like an what ancient a, forum sort of. Yeah, yeah. yeah they yeah. really believed in free speech and what a refreshing idea that is. <laughs> uh, so anyway, you, you could go to the Agora. Now, my Agora, I've got a whole lot of um, different things there. Um, and uh, one of them is uh, how to improve... Um, uh, voting systems. And yeah. in fact, I've, I've actually, while I'm talking to you, I've actually gone there uh, to to my uh, webpage. And yeah, I've it's gone very refreshing to... to see someone that has policies and thoughts up. So uh, transparency for everyone to see. Yeah. And and if you go to the Agora, you'll find work, that, yeah. that we've got uh, waste to energy. Uh, you can convert municipal waste to liquid fuels using technology that's been developed by the University of Queensland. And they estimate that they can create liquid fuels. And by that, I mean uh, petrol, dieselene, and uh, aviation turbine fuel for about 30 cents a litre from municipal waste. And we have sufficient municipal waste in this country to most probably satisfy our domestic needs and maybe even sufficient to export some of it. Yeah. Now, think what that would do to our economy. Um, the next button down is about flood mitigation, which we'll deal with later, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, there's another one where I advocate that companies should pay no tax, and that would make an interesting read in itself. Um, I deal with anthropogenic global warming, um, which is 
it's not happening. It's actually getting cooler. Uh, and then I've got a, th a button called election reforms. And mm. if you go to that, um, you'll find that I deal with things like compulsory voting, political parties, and uh, suggested reforms that would overcome the nullifying influences that actually uh, cause us not to have the best candidates elected to be our representatives. Yeah, that was something that I was going to ask you about later. Um, but now that we're we're here, um, did you want to talk about some of the recommendations that you've got for improving the quality of our political system and candidates? Yeah, look, yep. the very I, if I'm elected, I view that my political party are the 50,000 eligible voters here in the electorate of Ballina. Mm -hmm. And my intention is once a week for three weeks going, and then I'll take a week off. So if you can imagine in the first week, I'm going to go to somewhere in Ballina where there's a town hall, and this will be you know widely advertised. And anybody can come to that town hall, listen to me speak and ask me any question they like. And I have to answer that question or I might take the question on notice, in which case in my fourth week, I will be studying up to try and provide an answer to the uh, to that particular elector when I get my constituent, when I get back to the town hall again. In the second week, I'll and go look, up to... And that's a, a really good thing that you can do at a local level. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, government works best if it's close to the people. Exactly. That's that's something that we've learned, you know, back in the Greek times. Um, so the next week I go up to, say, Byron Bay or Ocean Shores, and then the next week I'm out at Mullumbimby, and then, as I say, on the fourth week I'll take a rest, or not so much a rest, but just basically consolidate and, and put everything together uh, so that I don't disappoint persons when I come back the week after and do another town hall at Ballina and just repeat the process. So for three years, I'll be doing that. And that's that's basically the first thing that you can do to improve what the heck's going on here because uh, people need to be able to reach out and, and see and touch and hear their representatives. Yeah. Uh, and that's there's not enough of it done. I know I, re I appreciate that at times I'm going to have to go to Parliament, uh, most probably for mind-numbing you know, uh, listening to people. But um, whenever I can, I want to be uh, very contactable by my uh, constituents. Yeah. Uh, now, we talked about how we could improve the, uh, the election. Because we have compulsory voting, you cannot get away from the fact that there will be a number of people who really don't give a damn and are only going there because they're forced to go there. Yeah. So you will firstly have informal ballots. And really, I don't mind informal ballots uh, because that they're from people who either don't give a damn or they're not they're not sufficiently informed enough to fill out a ballot paper properly. And maybe they're not the sort of people you want making a judgment on as to who gets elected to office. Um, but I am concerned with the donkey vote because it can actually influence the outcome of an election. If somebody is lucky enough to have their name first on the ballot, they could have up to a 5% advantage over some other candidate who may, in fact, be a better choice. Mm -hmm. So in order to get rid of the donkey vote, what I'm proposing is that the names on the ballot ought to be jumbled. Now, let's pretend that, well, in fact, we don't have to pretend, there are four candidates uh, running in this election, one yes, from the yeah. Greens, one from Labor. Sorry, Victor. No, I was just, um, that is something that I was going to um, 
bring up is just the fact that it is quite a small field. Yeah. And I how I actually believe um, that that's going to uh, play into your, your hands um, quite a lot. So you've got no Shooters Party, no One Nation, no United Australia, no Christian Democrats, no other independents running. So it's yourself, the National Party, uh, the Labor Party, and um, the incumbent, which is the Greens. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, it's Tamara Smith, isn't it? Yeah. Look, I, I'll yeah. even digress at this stage. If we could just hold that thought about jumbling the names on ballot papers and return it for a moment, you've actually raised something else that's very interesting. I watched what happened in the federal election and I was pretty much appalled that we end up with a Labor Party in power with something like 33% of the vote. Yes. And, and what I believe the minor party should have done was hold a joint pre-selection. In other words, if we're talking about Ballina, uh, rather the seat of Richmond, which is basically the electorate of Ballina, very close to it, all of the minor parties, the UAP and so forth, uh, Liberal Democrats and so forth, they should have put forward a candidate for pre-selection. And then all of them could have met at a town hall or whatever and listened to each one of the candidates and what the candidates stood for and so forth, and then decide, look, that candidate is the best of all of the candidates that we have within our parties. Mm. So we will now all vote for that person. Now that would, and that then that's the person which which is put forward as the candidate. In which case, we would be in the same situation we are in now. And, and by the way, interestingly, um, because the UAP know me. And because One Nation knows me and because the Christian Democrats know me, in fact, they know me because they made me sit a half-day interview and I love them. Um, <laughs> and I do. I, I think they're fantastic people. Um, and um, I'm saying the Liberal Democrats, the UAP, One Nation um, and the Christian Democrats, um, they all believe in the things I believe in. Mm. And so the consequence is that I effectively, I've been pre-selected by all of these parties. And, and that further reinforces what you're talking about. I believe there's a, there's a really good chance that I might succeed because the people here are absolutely disenchanted with the Greens, Labor and the Liberal and National parties for what they have done to us with regard to COVID-19 and their basic handling of the economy, the cost of electricity, the cost of fuel, everything. Mm -hmm. These people are on the verge of wrecking this country. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of people are starting to say, hey, we, we don't want these people. They mm -hmm. don't stand for anything. They're just chasing votes and hoping that, you know, someone will, will cast a vote if they agree to transgenderism or some other wacky idea. Um, there's also a certain degree of cowardice that they're not, they're not happy to take the slings and arrows of, um, you know, radical Marxists and activists and so forth. Whereas as an ex-military man, I, I, I don't give a, well, I can't say it on, on a, over the thing, but I really don't care. You know, it, it, this is like going to war as far as I'm concerned. My country is at stake. Right. And the, um, there is a history in your region of people voting for independence as well. Right. And um, I was going to say with the uh, the Greens candidate, uh, she uh, won on second preferences through Labor. That's right. Last time, yeah. So well, when when Matthew Fraser ran, 
Mm. Uh, he got the majority of the vote. And, you know, he got most, when I say that, he he got the most votes of anybody, votes, most yeah. primary votes. And it was only Labor that got uh, Tamara Smith across the line. And when Benjamin Franklin ran, it was a very similar story. Right. And before Tamara, it was uh, the National Don, Don Page, yeah. A long time. Yeah, yeah. And he was related to Earl Christmas Grafton Page. Uh, which is the full name of the gentleman who was one of the founders of the country party. Right. So okay. he's the, I think he was the grandson of uh, Earl Christmas Grafton Page, or better yeah. known as Earl Page. Yeah, for, who, by the way, outsider, was a, sorry, you go. Uh, who, by the way, was an incredible doctor and surgeon. I just right. sort of throw that in. Earl Page was a really remarkable man. Sorry, you were going to say the... Um... Now, what was I going to say? Oh, um, the, as an outsider from um, uh, from Queensland looking in, it is quite uh, remarkable the the um, seismic shift that occurred in 2015 uh, from the National Party to the Labor and Greens Party. Uh, and I did some background searching on that. And the consensus seems to be that it was literally just around one issue, which was the coal seam gas drilling that they were proposing for the region. Yes. Is, is, am I reading that right? Or yeah, yeah. Well, it was more... certainly it was certainly a masthead. There's no doubt about it. Right. Um, and and you know there there was another aspect of this as well, and that is that Don suddenly just decided he was going to quit politics. Oh, he and, did. And, right. And he did not truly cultivate a successor. Yeah. Um, and there was a further spat going on in that a lady who's now the mayor, that's Sharon Cadwallader. She had her eyes set on uh, running for the electorate of Ballina. Uh, and instead, uh, it was decided that a chap called Chris Beavis would run. Chris had a background in lifesaving and, and you know, surf patrol, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and uh, Sharon was very upset, uh, felt insulted by the fact that she'd given so much. And uh, she, and believe me, the reason I wanted her as mayor is because she is tireless and she is a good representative. She listens to everybody. She goes to every function you could imagine. I don't know how she does it. She's she just, she's incredible. Uh, and that's the sort of person you want uh, as a mayor. And and I, I would have liked her to have been the representative running for Ballina. But, you know, I've, I've actually told her that. I said, Sharon, you you know, you, you would have made an excellent representative. And is she an independent or is she... No, she is pretty much aligned with the National Party still. Okay. Now, you should understand that I think a lot of National Party members are lovely people and I could easily be in the National Party were it not for the fact that the National Party has largely gone woke. We've got a guy called Keane in there. Uh, it, it, it is Matt Keane, but they call him Mad Keane, um, who has taken the, the party well and truly over to the left-hand side of the road. Um, we've got a situation where in our schools there are Aboriginal studies where they're teaching the kids that uh, we white fellas came in and massacred all the black fellas, which is absolute garbage. If you go back and read the works of Keith Winshuttle, uh, it, it, it paints a far more complex picture than something as simplistically put as that. Um, the other thing that they're now teaching in schools is that carbon dioxide is warming the atmosphere and if we don't stop all of these emissions we're all going to die and that's just absolute garbage and that's all happening on the nationals watch 
Sarah Mitchell has been in the, uh, in the uh, seat for uh, both the Aboriginal area and uh, education, and the same goes for um, Benjamin Franklin. And I, I believe both of those people are a very bad influence on the National Party. Right. And um, I left the National Party. You know, I, I left it in, in distress, you could say. I was just so distressed mm. that they weren't uh, speaking up robustly about the denial of early treatment to Australians for COVID-19, the use of masks and lockdowns when we, I mean, there's 70 years of data that says masks don't work. And in fact, there's every indication that masks actually help to spread a a, a respiratory RNA virus. Uh, And here we are wearing masks. It just, it was lunacy. I was trying to get- I think that um, the Cochrane review, you would think should have, been the death knell for mask wearing um and i think that was released about two months ago um but it's been completely ignored um but but you know victor i'm talking like i wrote this letter to the prime minister premiers and so forth in in uh uh on the 21st of october 2021 i know now you know i knew that masks didn't work around march 2020 um and, and I knew also, as a consequence of the work of Didier Raoult in France and then uh, Vladimir Zelenko in New York and then Simone, Simone Gold, Brian Tyson, um, uh, Professor Dr. Peter McCulloch, uh, fantastic people, by the way. I, I, I bloody die for them. Um, just terrific people. But we knew that hydroxychloroquine, when combined with zinc and azithromycin and vitamin C, is an extremely effective cure for COVID-19. Mm. Um, it reduces death rate by sixfold, such that that disease is less dangerous than influenza. Right. It was it was nuts, and, and and I was saying this to um, David Gillespie, who's the regional the minister for regional health. I had him talking to Barnaby Joyce. Barnaby had never pick up the phone and talk to me, but I was urging them to say, "Look, just go into Morrison and say we don't have a coalition unless you stop this bullshit." Mm. Stop doing this. Stop the lockdowns. Tell the premiers they can't lock down the the borders because it's against the constitution. And if they don't get, you know, if they don't get their houses in order, the Morrison should go to David Hurley, the governor general, and say, "I want you to do something." And that's get the military, aid to the civil power, and open the borders. And while we're at it, we're going to lock up the premiers. And that's what really should have happened. Mm. Instead of that. This country is now $900 billion needlessly in debt and small businesses were ruined, uh, kids' educations were ruined, and now they're injecting an extremely dangerous uh, therapy, gene therapy, into people, which has interestingly killed two close relatives of mine. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I, I'm just, I'm, I am not a happy chappy, and I yeah. want to bring these people to justice. I say that as I'm going around doing the rounds. Right. I am really, really angry about this. And it, 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 if, it, if they didn't do this deliberately, they are so incompetent and reckless, they still ought to go to jail. Right. They're killing people and they're still killing people. And how, um, when you, you're walking with your constituents, um, you said that just before you came on here, you were out, um, you know, pounding the pavement. How, how are people in the street responding um, when you when you speak so openly and freely about this issue, because um, let's be honest, it's been there's been a complete gag order on any discussion around these issues for the last three years. Um, 
unofficially and officially. Um, so it's interesting um, to hear someone talk so openly and freely about it. And I'm just wondering what the response has been. Good question. Yesterday, I went over to New Brighton Markets. And at the end of my going around and talking to everybody and handing out my card, I have a little card and on the front of it, it there's a barcode which allows people to scan and go to my website and learn all about me and also what I think. And uh, then down below it, uh, a list of very important items or things which I hold to be important. And, and it's a very short list because obviously there's only so much you can slip onto a card <laughs> and people can still read unless you're talking microfish. And then on the back, I have a very brief rendition of my CV. Anyway, I'm walking around and I finished doing the, the markets and they're all closing up. And I had the most cordial, uh, you know, greetings from everybody at that market. It was just delightful. I went over to get a cup of coffee and there was a group of people, maybe eight people all sitting around the table. And so I thought I'd, I'd, I wouldn't be disturbing them. So I just walk over and say, look, I'm Kevin Lockrow. I'm actually running for parliament for the uh, state's uh, electorate of, uh, of Ballina. Um, and I, I wonder if I might give you my card. And they, they all looked at me good. And this lady across the table said, oh, look, I'm, I vote for Green and, and there's no point in me taking the card. And then one of them asked me about various things. And we got on to the vaccines and so forth. And I, I went off like a free keg, just like I did then. And I also got on to the business of how expensive electricity is and how young people and the vulnerable can't afford to be paying seven times more for electricity than we were back in 2007 yeah. and how we're paying. And this is in real terms. We're not talking about, you know, an inflated price. This is in real terms, taking into account the consumer price index. We're also paying twice as much for petrol and diesel than we were back in 2007 per the CPI. So anyway, I said, look, the poor and the vulnerable in our community cannot stand this. And now I move on to housing. And we, we are say, facing a housing crisis up here because they will not release land. And when they do release land, they release it to large developers who then keep a stranglehold on it and mm -hmm. leak out the finished blocks in such a way as to keep the market elevated. I'm not suggesting that we crash the market, by the way. I do understand that if you suddenly release, you know, a million acres of, of land for housing, uh, you would you would destroy people's uh, you know superannuation asset, which is their family home. So you've got to you've got to be gentle in this. But I believe we ought to be looking over, say, a twenty year period, at reducing the the cost of houses markedly. And by markedly, I see I say by at least half what they're presently costing. Um, so and anyway, I want to just put that in um, just some context for people who may not understand what's actually happened. Um, to some of the areas within your your district over the last five years, um, for yeah. example, Byron Bay. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, look, Byron Bay's most probably uh, shot its bolt because um, it's attracted a lot of people who are not big earners, um, you know, almost verging on homeless, the uh, the gypsy types. Uh, and whereas there have been quite a number of very wealthy types who have set up there, but. It's starting to look a little bit like San Francisco or Los Angeles, if you get the drift. Uh, so it may be that it's not such a desirable place any longer, or it's certainly not as desirable as it used to be. But that doesn't mean that they still don't have a housing crisis and a rental crisis, by the way. Exactly. But the point, well, I think the, the, um, the median house price in Byron is 1.3 mil. Yes. And the average weekly rent is $900 a week. 
Yes. Which is quite extraordinary when you consider that it is still considered a regional centre. It is, um, yeah. Yeah, and I know that housing prices, even in Ballina, because of that, have gone up, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, about 27%. Yes. Um, it, so there's, you've done there's, your there's research a big, well. Yeah, there's, well, it drives me mad. But um, there's been that a huge increase. And Byron Bay, in I think in one year, which was perhaps the um, 2020, uh, 2021 year, had the, the highest uh, percentage growth um, in the country. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think the, the hippie class certainly has always been associated with Byron, but perhaps I think those people are being uh, pushed out, uh, but not just those. It's the people that work in the service industries, even farmers, um, working class. Those, those prices are just getting extraordinary. Yes, and, and we digressed a little because you asked me initially how people taking what I'm saying. Oh, yes. And yeah. so, so I'm, I'm with this group and this, this lady who said that she would agree. And by the end, she was saying, yes, yes. And then she said, look, I've got to give you a hug. And she got up from the table, came around the table and gave me a big hug in front of everybody. And then all of them said, we're voting for you. And that was it. And what do you so, think it was that, that won over the Greens lady? The, the the vaccines right That's the thing okay. and, and also i put it to her that the same evil and wicked bastards who have who dreamt up this this phony covid pandemic are behind the climate change scam it you're talking of blackrock you're talking of vanguard and you're talking of the chinese communist party as just you know the major players in this mm. because this this climate change rubbish has almost wrecked Western economies. And that is exactly what the Chinese communists want to have happen. The COVID scamdemic has bankrupted most Western nations because they stupidly went through lockdown. And now they, these, these gifted idiots have made all of the police and all of the defence force and all of the emergent, emergency workers take this dreadful vaccine which isn't a vaccine at all it's an mrna gene therapy mm. and there is every chance in the world that anybody who has moved on to boosters has now been permanently medically injured and will die you know in a, in a much will have a much shorter life than uh, they would have had they not been subjected to these injections mm. now you're talking about defense force out of in fact i've, I've sat in on a zoom I, i'm a lovely lady, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Thorpe, um, and uh, Teresa, Teresa Thorpe, I think her name is, if I'm, I, I hope I've got it right, um, and, and a fellow called Calendar, a Lieutenant Colonel Calendar. These people are um, surgeons for the uh, for air medicals in the US, and and she has written a uh, an affidavit saying that something like one-third of the US pilots are now medically injured. And you've got the prospect of some guy sitting in a single-seater jet having an episode, uh, you know, for example, going into cardiotachia or suffering a coronary occlusion or whatever at altitude with a weapons payload on mm. over, over a capital city. That's what these gifted idiots have done. Now, I can't, I, you know, I, I cannot believe that they could be so chronically stupid to do this because... The chances of a person dying from COVID-19, if they're 17 years or younger, I know this figure off by heart, that provided they have no medical comorbidity, comorbidity rather, is around six in 100 million. 
six in a hundred million. Now, the chances of you getting struck by lightning throughout your life is about one in 13,500. Yeah. So we're talking of saying that the chances of you dying from COVID is like the chances of you being uh, struck by lightning a thousand times. It yeah. is, it's just ridiculous. And I mean, even if you just look at the figures for children dying of influenza A, it's it's much higher than than from COVID. They're, yes. They're, they're very robust when it comes to that particular infection. Um, now, I'll, I'll tell you just... something that's come out of this, which is really exciting. And that is that if you use something like quercetin, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine in combination with zinc, and this is what Vladimir Zelenko worked out, the the those comp those compounds I talked about, quercetin, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, are what are referred to as lysosomotropic ionophores. Now, the reason they're called lysosomotropic is they act like lysosomes. They can pass in and out of cells. Yeah. But they're also ionophores. They have hydroxy, hydroxyl uh, branches hanging off them that will attract cations of zinc. So the ivermectin or the hydroxychloroquine or the quercetin will latch on to the zinc. And the reason you take vitamin C is that it makes the zinc electrolytically more active. Right. Once, once the zinc has latched on to the quercetin and the quercetin moves into the cytoplasm of the human cell, the zinc is known to interfere with what is called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And this substance, this chemical compound, is used by viruses to replicate. So in other words, this would be effective against the flu. It would also be effective against hemorrhagic fevers. Any RNA virus has to multiply using the genetic material in a cell and the ribosomes in a cell. And, and there's no way that they can evolve to get around this. So in other words, if you can put zinc into human cells, and obviously you would add to it azithromycin or doxycycline, because when people are infected with these particular viruses, they end up with inflammation in their lungs. Yep. And with inflammation, you get anaerobic bacteria like streptococcus growing, and they'll end up with, say, double pneumonia. Well, if you give them a prophylactic dose of doxycycline or azithromycin, the chances of that happening are greatly reduced. The consequence is that you reduce the death uh, by about sixfold. Now, that will... But, and, 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 and the, the vaccine... The vaccine companies don't want you to know about this. No, no, they don't. And 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 the other thing is that they they don't they can't make money off these. No, and everything that you you've just described and you described it very well. Some of it went over my head, but I got most of it. Um, was known before COVID. So Absolutely. what I'm saying is, yeah. is this is not just about these substances were looked at for the treatment of COVID. This has been known for yes. a very long time. Yes, I read a PubMed. I read a PubMed paper which was dated 2012, which talks about how zinc interferes with uh, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was yeah. known. <laughs> Where well, I think that's extraordinary that you managed. I will say this: um, I, I don't think it really matters if um, you have a what comes through from you, and literally from the first time I heard you speak. Is, is a true passion and a true drive and an integrity that you're being actually honest and that you want to make change. And I think that as much as I agree completely that you won over the lady that was for the Greens Party about the vaccine, I think what she would have also seen is all of those other elements as well. And it's just incredibly rare 
to hear that and to see that from anybody running for any seat right now, whether it's, you know, community, sorry, council, um, state or federal. Um, and I, I think that's your a real strength of yours. I think you need to get out there as much as you can and, and talk to people face to face and and show them that passion because it is going to win them over. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, it, it's just all of what I'm saying is common sense. Like we have to reduce the cost of electricity. We were lied to. We were told that renewables would give us cheaper energy than coal-fired power stations. Well, that was bunkum from the outset. If you inject intermittent power into your grid, then your baseload facilities will run most uneconomically. A baseload facility is intended or designed to run at 100% of its capacity 100% of the time. And when it's not, when there's no demand, you use that surplus power to pump water uphill to Jindabyne. And when there's a peak load coming on, you use the water you've pumped uphill to meet the peak load. So you're running this, this baseload facility, which you've paid, say, $2 billion for. You're running it at 100% of its time. And the cost, by the way, electricity coming from a properly operated coal-fired baseload facility runs at about $0.03 cents a kilowatt hour. $0.03 cents a kilowatt hour. And we are paying nearly $0.30 cents a kilowatt hour now. It's just absolutely ridiculous. See, the government insists that generators of electricity have to use a certain number of megawatt hours of so-called green energy, which is not green at all. It's polluting energy. To to make a solar uh, collector, you know, a a photovoltaic cell that sits on your roof, it uses a huge amount of energy. And at the end of its life, it is uneconomical to break it up and to recover the things which made it. Mm. So you've then got to dump it in the ground. The same goes for the windmills. There's a huge amount of energy that is you know, put into making those windmills. There are all sorts of rare earth materials which go into the magnets on the, on the turbine motors and so forth. Uh, and at the end of their life, the only thing you can do with these blades, which are made usually of fiberglass, is crush them up and use them as landfill. It's a shocking thing. Mm. Not to mention they're killing our, you know, our apex predator birds they uh they whack they they kill the owls and the eagles um, i'm not just to be the either. um the devil's advocate for a minute is it yeah. is it a case of the, that there is a lack of um efficient and affordable storage for this um this new energy that's coming through or is it is that, that would ameliorate the situation no argument that would ameliorate but but let me take you through a simple little bit of maths the um, six kilowatt system, which you may have sitting on your roof and which costs you $5,000, it mm-hmm. actually costs $10,000 because $5,000 was paid by the taxpayer or by the consumers of electrical energy, you know, yeah. through levies and taxes and subsidies and all the rest of it. So this thing sitting on your roof costs $10,000. It has a life of about 25 years, but in reality, you can say that you get the full amount of power out of it for only 20 years. It, 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 by about 15 years, it's starting to drop off, and by 20, 25 years, um, it's pretty useless. So mm-hmm. it's, let's pretend it's got a life of 20 years. Every day, you are likely, on the average, over a year, you will get around about 15 kilowatt hours out of your 6 kilowatt system per day. Multiply that by 365, multiply that by 20 years, 
and you end up with X number of megawatt hours, divide that into $10,000 and you come to approximately nine cents per kilowatt hour that this thing, you know, the electricity coming out of there uh, cost. But that came out intermittently. So you now have to go away and buy yourself a battery to store this energy so that when the sun's not shining and so forth, that you hmm. still have got your energy. Well, you have to put in a battery. You can play a Monte Carlo simulation, and depending on your geographic location, um, the amount of battery you will need will vary from place to place. But as a general rule, you need to have something like 30 kilowatt hours, uh, sorry, I lie, 18 kilowatt hours for a six kilowatt hour um, system. Uh, when you work that out, you come then to, in the, to cut to the chase, you end up having to pay about 38 cents per kilowatt hour for a system that will deliver to you uh, reliable electrical energy. Right. Okay. And that's a long way away from, you know, three to four cents a kilowatt hour from a coal fired power station. Yeah. Uh, so, to just the very, even if I had the storage, these systems are far more expensive than a coal fired power station. And, and by the way, a nuclear power station properly run is cheaper than a coal fired power station. And that I know for sure. Yeah. So, um, you're, no matter how you cut the cake, these things cost more. Now, one of the things they've always held out to us, oh, but technology will get better and we'll get more efficient solar cells and we'll be able to create more electricity for the same price. And yes. that is true. That is true. But we're not there yet. And we still have the problem of intermittency, which means then that we've got to pump the uh, electricity. We've got to use electricity to pump the water uphill. Now, when you pump water uphill, uh, to a dam, you're, I built a super titan pump uh, over on North Stradbroke Island, half megawatt super titan pump, and it delivered, I think, about 82% uh, efficiency. Warman pumps, uh, which are for alluvium, they produce about 70, and I think mine came in at about 82%. A Kaplan turbine or a Davis turbine runs at around about 90, 90 to 93%, something in that order. So in other words, if you multiply these two together, you end up with a total efficiency of about 70%. And put simply, for every 10 kilowatt hours or megawatt hours you pump into the system, you get seven back. You lose three through efficiencies. So the cost of your electricity pumping it up to a reservoir is more expensive than if you could just take it on tap. Mm. Okay. Um, so the, the bottom line, once again, is that uh, we don't have enough storage. I, I In fact, um, going back to my website and going back to that Agora, I may have, and if I have it, I, I can remedy that. Um, I've actually done a scoping study of um, Mad Keen's idea of pumping water, uh, developing an eight gigawatt system. Um, I'm just, sorry, I'm just looking at my thing to see if I've actually put it up and I haven't and I will do that. Um, I did a scoping study of Mad Keen's ideas of creating an eight gigawatt pumped hydro uh, driven by windmills and PV cells. Uh, and it came once again to something like 38 cents a kilowatt hour. But it doesn't seem to me that they've sat down and worked out how much the electricity is going to cost coming out of the system Oh, and the other thing about it was that I needed some, some ridiculous number of Warragamba dams of storage in order to provide 
with certainty, eight gigawatts of constant power. Hmm. So just bringing, just so we can, um, I'm just aware of the time, um, yeah. bring it bring it back down to Ballina. Um, so the cost of living, including, as you're talking about, electricity, petrol, this, uh, there was a poll that was uh, done, I think, today or yesterday, 50% of voters in New South Wales say that the, the number one um, issue for them right now is the cost of living. So everything yes. that you've just said, kind of very macro, bring it back back down to, to how what we can do at the, um, the local level um, and what, what your thoughts are around that for, for, um, for Ballina. Yeah, sure. Look, uh, the, the main driver of the cost of living is the cost of electricity, the cost of energy. Um, and it also threatens employment because yep. there is no way that we can compete against communist China if they're paying something in the order of seven cents a kilowatt hour or five cents a kilowatt hour for their electricity and we're paying 30 cents a kilowatt hour. Hmm. So um, <clears throat> the other thing is that the cost of fuel in, in tractors and so forth, all the farming has, requires energy. You will find, therefore, that if you could reduce the cost of electricity, and I'm talking of reducing it fivefold, I'm talking of reducing the cost of uh, petrol and dieseline by half, um, that would have a massive effect on reducing the cost of living. Right. And it's just, that's to me, I mean, that's just absolutely simple. It's right at the core of everything. Do that. I have a whole lot of ideas too, Victor, about how I could stimulate small business, uh, stimulate employment, um, and and basically put the economy on steroids. And we'll right. see how they, that one of one part of that is get rid I of company tax. I think that tax. small business and employment, particularly in your area, very important. Yes, I mean as uh, you've already touched on what happened during COVID, um, and the rural areas were hit the hardest. Yep. So we're sorry. I'm, I'm saying it's rural, but is it rural or regional? Well, I it's, it's a, a I know it's semantics, but um, I don't necessarily think about that area as being um, rural. Well, I'm living in, in surrounded by cane farms. Right. Okay. And, and if I was up in the mountains, I'd be surrounded by macadamia nut trees uh, or yeah. by uh, dairy cattle or by uh, coffee plantations. Well, there you uh, go. Yeah, but we we grow a lot of stuff here, but we also have a regional influence in that if you know the Ballina Township is is highly developed. Yeah, it's, and yeah, yeah, it is, and and it's very comfortable living. I mean, there's there's lots of hotels, restaurants, uh, dress shops, so it's and great, and and the medical support is great also. And how how is the the rezoning that has happened? I noticed there was a rezoning in this election. Is that going to um, affect? It will actually benefit me. Because yeah, right. Because was I, that, yeah. that's kind of, uh, now, it, would that have included Nimbin or parts of Nimbin or is it more rural? No, um, it takes in Mullumbimby. Um, oh, Mullum, okay. Yeah, and Alstonville is obviously in it. Yep. Um, as you go inland, you find people are less away with the ferries if you don't go near Nimbin. Right. Uh, and and so the consequence is, you know, when I go to a place like Nuribar, I find people are very very what I consider to be normal. 
hardworking. Um, you know, uh, they don't they don't appear to me to be anything like the people that I ran into in the Byron Bay area. Right. Some of the people in the Byron Bay area are really hardcore greenies. And and when I tried to explain to a lady that the temperatures are actually going down, the, the earth is not warming up. I've got a whole lot of graphs to prove that raw data from numerous climatology networks around the world. She became really upset. And then the matter moved on to, you know, our treatment of Aborigines. And, and by then the, the conversation had, you know, absolutely deteriorated and it was time for me to get out. But the, these people have the luxury um, of being in a financial position where um, they don't care how much their uh, electricity bills are, um, whereas the rest of us, um, the reality of the ground is this, uh, struggling to get by. Um, yes. And so they have money brings that luxury to not yeah. worry about a lot of different things. Well, and also those that are, you know, almost homeless are living off the dole or whatever, and they live out of cafes and stuff like that, and, and they're, they're really not in touch with the real world. They're living like they're on a permanent holiday. Yeah, but I think the, the climate thing is another thing where it's an issue that uh, it now makes up a, a large part of people's identity. So when you try to talk to them rationally, use statistics, talk to them about objective facts, um, you, what you're doing, you're actually challenging who they are as a person. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that's a hard thing to come up against. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you entirely. You're, you're quite right. Yeah. And I'm not sure what the solution is. You know, um, I don't know where this is going to end. <laughs> um, well, we might just put a, a, a pause, a, 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 put a, um, a period on that. Um, yeah, sure. And did you want to just quickly um, talk about um, the floods um, and where yeah, we're sure. at um, uh, 12 months later from yeah, could, Lismore could we, being uh, under 14 metres of water? Could we put a pause and I'll just get another glass of water? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Speaking of water, I'll, I'll just go and get that. For sure. And we're back. And I think we were um, just about to start to talk about um, how the region is recovering um, 12 months on from what they, they hyped as the uh, flood of the century, I think. Yeah, yeah. Look, but from um, what you've you've written, would yeah, go on. Um. I was going to say, and I didn't want to cut you off there, Victor. Right? Um, it it was the flood of the century, but it was actually the confluence of a whole lot of incompetence. Mm. And I use confluence because it's obviously got fluidic connotations um, or hydrological connotations. Um, the first thing they did or didn't do was they haven't dredged the river since 1998. And that meant Which that river there, was that one? The, the Richmond River. Richmond, right, yeah. So the water couldn't flow properly down the river. Then um, is there any reason why they haven't? Is it uh, en environmental? It's it's the oh, greenies it's again. It's the greenies. The greenies don't like dredging rivers. You know, you're disturbing nature. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's the first one. The second one was once again the greenies closed off the Tuckenbill Canal. Now the old timers built this canal which joined up the Richmond River to the Evans River, such mm -hmm. that, and this is down at a, a place called Woodburn or near Woodburn. I know. Woodburn. And 
And the Wilsons River flows into the Richmond near Woodburn. And what used to happen, and what they did, they, these guys were pretty smart. They didn't have to go off the university to do a degree in hydrology. They cut a canal through to the Evans River such that around about 75% of the flood water would flow directly through to the Evans River and then out to sea. There would be some flooding down at Evans Head, but not as catastrophic as, nor would there be the same level of you know, collateral damage as happened in Ballina, CBD and so forth. So what they did, they, they actually had put a weir across the Tuckenbill Canal so that the water cannot flow to the same extent down the Tuckenbill Canal. That was, that was a major contributing factor. Then we move on to building levees up at Lismore instead of building dams, the Danoon Dam in particular, up in the catchment area. They have spent something, some huge amount of money in the order, I believe, of $20 million, which would have easily given us half a dam. They built these levees, and when the levees fail, it's catastrophic. You, you have this sudden rush of water. Um, the levees also hold back water, interfere with flows and so forth, mm -hmm. <laughs> stopping the water from flowing away easily until they break. Then we had a highway, which it, it is the dual highway running Sydney to Brisbane, and a lot of vegetation evidently got stuck in the culverts which run under the road, thereby inhibiting the flow from the slopes down to the Richmond River. Gotcha. And this, yep. this resulted in the water from the slopes arriving at approximately the same time as the water arrived from Lismore. So you had a double entendre, whereas if those culverts had worked properly, the water would have flown out through the mouth of the river before the Lismore water turned up. You'd still have flooding, but nothing like what we experienced. It was unbelievable, truly mm. unbelievable. Now, the last thing is that what we could have done and what should be done is that there should be diversions cut from the Richmond River directly to the sea. In other words, we should build canals from the Richmond River through to the sea with floodgates at each end. And this would actually benefit the farmers because it would lower the groundwater level um, when we're, we're not having flooding, um, which would allow them then to get higher crop yields out of their, their pastures. But when we did have flooding, you would be able to divert the water directly from the Richmond straight out to sea. And one place that is particularly amenable to this solution is down near East Wardell. There's the Boundary Creek. And the Boundary Creek used to run out to the sea and it wouldn't take much excavation to, to build a, a proper canal, something in the order of say six meters wide and you know maybe four meters deep running straight down to the ocean. And you put then floodgates in concrete pipes at the ocean end at the river end, mm -hmm. such that when the river is higher than the water in the paddocks, it can't flow in there. But when the water in the paddocks is higher than the water in the river or in the ocean, it can flow out of the, the paddocks into the ocean and into the river. And so, that's how you then bring your water levels down in the, in the ground. So you made uh, a, a number of suggestions there. Is there any movement on any of this? or No, instead, the New South Wales government and the federal government, rather than fix that up, they are lined up to spend $800 million. Now, to put this into perspective, the Clary Hall Dam cost $34 million in 70, 1979. 
I've estimated that to build a dam equivalent to the Clary Hall Dam up here now would most probably cost about 100 to 150 million. These idiots are going to spend 800 million causing people to leave what they have designated as floodplains. So they're telling people, oh, you've got to pack up. I don't care if you've been here for six generations, you've got to move. Uh, and those houses which remain, they're going to jack them up on stumps such that if they have another flood, then these people will not be as severely affected. <laughs> now, if we if we put in the dams and did what I'm talking about... That sounds about, like a script from a comedy. <laughs> it is. It is. It's crazy. It's crazy stuff. They could build four dams for this, and each dam would be an asset that would last us a 1,000 years. It would generate hydroelectricity. It would give us plentiful, ultra-cheap drinking water. They're talking about sucking the water from the ground, which is a really dumb idea because you'll cause subsidence and all sorts of other nasties to happen. Plus, we we dump our rubbish in the ground, so it won't be too long before the groundwater becomes infected with you know PCBs and dioxins and DDTs and God knows what else. Mm-hmm. We we intend to suck that water from the ground, and remember that we're paying seven times more for electricity than we were before, so it's not going to be cheap to suck the water from the ground. Uh, or they're talking of toilet to tap. Now, in either instance, the water will cost between six and 12 times more than water from a dam, and you will have to ration it. Yeah, That's what these idiots are about. They, they want an authoritarian solution where they get to order people around, you can live here, you can't live there, you've got to build this high, you can't build that low, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and then, oh, well, we've got to ration our water and you can't wash your car and, oh, we'll fine you if you wash your car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, that's what these people are about. They're going to waste $800 million of taxpayer money and at the end of it, there'll be nothing to show for it except misery and authoritarianism. So what's um, why are dams um, so politically toxic? They, well, I, I met an idiot woman the other day who told me that she'd been told by somebody that dams do a lot of environmental damage to the streams. And I said, well, look, I'd, I'd have to class myself as an engineer knowledgeable in hydrology because I built, I, 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 I shouldn't say I built, I played a role in the construction of the Coonpie Trench down the western side of North Stradbroke Island. And I definitely quantified the flows, which other people couldn't do. I I determined um, by very clever means how much water actually flows into the Coonpie Trench. And then I designed with the help of an absolutely lovely fellow called John uh, Flynn. And uh, I I had another chap helping me as well, whose name has has escaped me at this stage. John Lyons, God, I, I shouldn't. John Lyons also was an engineer there, and I had enormous help from them. I developed a uh, super titan pump, half megawatt super titan pump, to move it. So what I'm saying is I'm knowledgeable in these matters, and I tried to explain to this woman that dams do an awful lot of environmental good. And I won't take you through them on this this program, but just take it as read. Mm. Dams are absolutely beautiful things. Lots of water, lots of wildlife, lots of fish, platypus, goannas, lizards, bird life, you name it, trees, koalas, the whole bit. That's what dams give you. And Uh, I think dams are one of those things that are, as far as I know, universally accepted. Yeah, yeah. All Every country on earth. Yeah, not here. Not and, here. And that you can thank the Greens for that. But I, I think there's also another agenda, possibly, and that is to stop people from coming here. Because if right. they can't get water, then you can't have this population. 
Yeah, right. So, so the reason I said of... um, that it's a, a little bit politically toxic is the um, the government's 2022 independent flood inquiry. Um, there were, I think, 18 to 20 recommendations, and the dam was mentioned once in recommend, recommendation number 16. Yeah. They're um, absolutely buried. And, yes. I mean, my question that I've got written next to that is, four people's lives were lost and tens of thousands of people were displaced. Seems like a simple solution. Is it just cost? Um, no. But it's, it, yeah. $800 what I say, dollars to I, put houses on stilts, though. Like, when 800 million they're planning on spending. And, and look, I, I said, I've said this in my, uh, in my various addresses. Um, we have, as a community, lost billions of dollars. We're like tens of billions of dollars because of flooding not to mention the environmental damage of, of tearing away the riverbanks and all the silt and the mud that goes down. It's destroying the ecology in the rivers and so forth. Um, we All of this damage is happening and all we need to do is spend at present day value $120 million, say four times over, because I reckon we need four dams. The Burrill Creek Dam needs to be built to augment the Clary Hall Dam. And we could do with another couple of dams up around the, you know, where Danoon is, Casino and so forth. Um, that that would then solve the whole problem. We would never be flooded again if we properly managed the dams. Yeah. So, and, and they won't look at it. And that gives you an indication of what morons politicians are. Mm. They're, they're qualified in arts degrees. They're highly articulate. Often they are duplicitous. Mm. Uh, but there is no common sense, no courage, uh, just floating along, do uh, you know, doing it with a, a, a reactionary. I'm lost for war. I'm lost for words for once. <laughs> I, I really have little regard for them. They are the stupidest people on two legs. Yeah. Hamstrung also by short term um, terms in, in government as well. Well, you know, the Americans have two years in government, and actually, I'm something of a fan of turning over the uh, the manure as often as possible. <laughs> I was going to say, did you want to extend it out to five years? No, no. Can you imagine having Mad Team or Perrottet or, or, for that matter, Albanese in there for five years or Rudd or Gillard? Yeah. They have done such enormous damage to the Australian economy and also to our social cohesiveness. It, it, I, I worry that we'll never recover from it. Yeah. Um, so speaking of um, Dominic, um, do you who do you think um, will be? Well, I saw a poll today that was suggesting that it's um, there's a strong possibility of a hung parliament for the first. That's time. That's what I'm aiming for. That's as an independent, that would give me an that enormous would... amount of influence. Yeah. So the the two uh, party preferred is swinging towards Labor, um, yes. but preferred leader is still Dominic. Um, so. And it's close on both of those measures. I Look, if I was to get into Parliament, if I had influence, uh, hey, that this will sound crazy, but I'd, I'd almost be tempted to make them all sit an IQ test and uh, the person who came out with the highest IQ, and I'm not just talking about an academic IQ, I'm talking about, you know, dexterous facility, the whole bit, critical thinking, inductive thinking, um, then I would say that's going to be the leader. I would not have Dominic Perrottet. Uh, he he is an abs abject failure. That he, no intellect, craven, bending in every direction. 
Mm. And, and I definitely, I would just fire. You know, honestly, Keane needs to go to the Greens and, and then to oblivion. Uh, the, and and I, I've already said, I, I want Sarah Mitchell and I want uh, Benjamin Franklin out of Parliament. Uh, they have destroyed the Nationals. That is right. my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and there must probably are others in that group that I would want to get rid of as well. So and it's unlikely I'll, I'll bear that influence, but I will definitely, if we have a home parliament, I will have more influence than I have, um, yeah. you know, as a, as a crossbencher uh, in a parliament that has a ruling majority. Well, I if I was in, in Ballina electorate, I would definitely vote for you. Um, I want to say um, thank you very much for chatting today. Oh, thank you, uh, Victor, for the opportunity. Oh, man, it's been, been enjoyable. Um, I wish you the very best of luck over the next few weeks. Um, Thank you. And I think we were um, just discussing um, off camera there about a meet and greet hosted by Bay FM. Um, yes. That's at the Byron Theatre on March 15th. That's correct. That's 6 p.m. 6 p.m. And the, that's the theatre. There's a couple of theatres. This is the one on Johnson Street. Uh, to be truthful, I don't know, but I do know where to go because I've been there before. <laughs> okay. I think it's like a community centre, theatre, is it? I think you're right. In fact, yeah. no, you are right because I went to Bay FM and it was in Johnson Street. Yeah, right. Cool. Um, yeah, no, you're right. And other than the, the meet and greet, um, any other events planned for the next few weeks? Yeah. Um, there's another, um, there's, there's a thing happening on the, on the 13th. There's an auditorium at Ocean Shores Country Club at 6 p.m. Oui. That's on the 13th. And that's Ocean a meeting. Ocean Shores Country Club. Yeah, Ocean Shores Country Club. I, I have a most marvellous lady helping me. In fact, two, two marvellous ladies. One is Mara Spong. I, I must give her credit. And also Diane Kirsch. Uh, they're both fabulous. In fact, I'm just blessed. I have a whole David Belch is another one, and the list goes on. Uh, Wayne Baird, uh, great people, and they're they're all helping me, and I would be lost without them. I can tell you, utterly lost. All right. So, do you know what you're going to be doing on election day yet? Well, yeah, um, I'm going to choose the biggest polling station. You know, the one that has the most number of people. And I will spend a lot of my time there, but I'm hopeful. I, I have about 800 addresses on my email uh, and I'd love to have a lot more. Unfortunately too, by the way, my email server will only allow me to send 500 emails an hour or I get uh, blacklisted. So I have to break up my, my stuff. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, who, who are you with with your email? Well, I'm with Bluehost in the United States. Oh, I have okay. a, I have a, a very, uh, and in fact, I shouldn't go much further because I'd be breaking security. But I have a very secure Linux server, which was set up oh, by okay. a genius, yeah. And um, it, it sits here, it's resident, and then it goes by um, SSH across to um, the United States, and and they they they've been with me for uh, uh, twenty five years. Uh, They've looked after me, and they've been very, very good. Mm. So, where's the largest um, polling centre? Would it be Ballin? Uh, Paras, yeah, yeah, it'd be Ballin yeah. Coast High School. Right. That that's the that, and there, there's no doubt there'll be a big one over in um, in Byron Bay too, uh, yeah. up around that area. But because uh, they're the, they're the centres of urban conurbation, of course. There's the the uh, Ballin, Alstonville. Uh, Mullumbimby and uh, Ocean Shores and uh, Byron Bay. Byron Bay, yeah. And um, how can people contact you if they want to? 
Oh, look, I, I'm delighted to hear from anybody. My phone number is 0416-276-624. You'll also find that on my website. You'll find contact details there. Please, guys, I need volunteers uh, to hand out how to vote uh, you know, in the week of the pre-poll and then to be there on the day at each of the polling booths handing out how to vote cards. As much as I hate how to vote cards, if I don't do that, I'm, you know, running under a handicap. Exactly. And the, the website again was? It's Kevin Lockray. Now, I, by the way, uh, my children would have loved me to have adopted my mother's name Stone because my children are not happy that I am running for parliament. Um, they are worried about all manner of things, one of which is that I would embarrass myself um not likely no, no. <laughs> but nevertheless you know i love them I, I love them the bits um but yeah so my name is kevin lockray now lock is an irish lake l-o-u-g-h to help people spell it l-o-u-g-h-r-e-y in the same way that you say h-e-y is hey it's r-e-y for ray dot com dot a-u so that's kevin lockray dot com dot a-u and if you go to my website, you can see contact details. Um, you can write me emails. You can ring me. Uh, and I would be delighted to hear from you. Uh, I do need people to help me uh, to, you know, as I say, man the voting booths and make this happen. And it's for your children and your grandchildren. Yeah. Well, thank you for your passion, Kevin. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Victor. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And thank you very much for this opportunity. No, no problems at all. My pleasure. Okay. Take Cheers, care. mate. Okay, bye.